The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Um, so we begin a new study today. But listen, we, um, we probably all have uh, seen examples of, of times when we thought we were being biblical, um, or being biblical uh, got us into trouble. I mean, I can think of... Um, I can think of students that I know, who, or young people I know, who when they were university students, they went off to school, and they were surprised by some of the hostility that they met when they arrived, and they, they held to what we, would, what we might call a biblical view of creation, or God's design for the universe, and then um, when they arrived, they were surprised by how many people thought that they're dumb, or they're unintelligent, or the, and it's like, they, they, these young people felt like, all of a sudden, now I need to choose between being biblical or being educated or loving science, or, or loving uh, education and, and higher thought. Um, I can think of married couples who, uh, who fought over money because uh, one of them in the, in the marriage was taught, um, because of a certain approach to the Bible, that Christians shouldn't have debt, like it's a sin to be in debt. And so uh, all of their disposable income goes towards paying down debt, like no vacations and no going on dates. And, and, and couples like this, they, I've known who have, have stayed together but uh, are, are miserable and, and are constantly stressed out by finances because of a certain approach to a certain biblical approach to money. I can think of a uh, of a lady who grew up grew up in the church. Uh, she fell in love with a guy, um, and, and the Bible is very clear about sex outside of marriage. But it doesn't say anything technically about living together before you're married. Um, so they got a place, um, and it's not technically unbiblical to you know to uh, to get an apartment together, for example. Um, uh, and, and so they did, and they they lived together for a while, and, and eventually her faith evaporated. I can think of a pastor friend of mine who was just a year into a new church that he'd been hired into, and he decided that uh, he it was it was time for him to to preach on what he would call biblical manhood and womanhood, and uh, he shared a list in that sermon of roles that he felt were um, were off limits, where women were not allowed to hold, and within a week. This church of 200 people split in half because he felt he was being biblical. You could go back further to uh, the United States in the 18th century, and you've got a country that is split uh, over the practice of slavery. Something that it's not explicitly forbidden in the Bible. In fact, in the Bible, slaves are spoken of as, as property. There's instructions, actually, about how to treat slaves. And so lots of preachers in those days taught that slavery was actually God's will. Uh, it, and, and slave owners are doing their slaves a favor by, by keeping them back in the 18th century. Back, a little bit later in, in Canada. Uh, the 19th century of Canada. And, and leaders in Ottawa uh, want to expand westward. And the leaders in Canada, the leaders in Ottawa are, are figuring out, how do we do this? How do we expand the, expand the Dominion West uh, when there's all these First Nations people in the way? And the leaders, they knew their Bible, and they believed that the precedent was set in the book of Joshua, that when God has promised his people a land, they have the divine right to use violence uh, and starvation and, and smallpox blankets in order to remove whoever stands in the way. They felt they were being biblical. Um, and we could go on and on. You probably could come up with examples similar to these. There, there is a way to treat scripture uh, that gives us permission to do all sorts of awful things, isn't there? 
Um, this isn't a new problem. It's, it's as old as the Bible itself. That's why as far back as the, the uh, 4th century, um, St. Augustine, uh, Augustine said, he said this, whoever then thinks he understands the Holy Scriptures or any part of them, but puts such an interpretation upon them as does not tend to build up his, this twofold love of God and our neighbor, does not yet understand them as he ought. I love that. So today what we're asking is, how do we know if we're using the Bible right? Like, how do we know whether we have twisted it in order to say something that we want it to, so that it hurts others, and so that it ultimately hurts ourselves as well? It's a super important question for us to wrestle with, particularly as we, as a church, we've, we've figured that our mission is, is to be the church here in Hamilton, and, and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven. Um, it is so important that we learn how to use the word in a way that builds us and builds others up and we're not twisting it and making God's word say things it was never meant to, uh, to say. So over the next little while, we're going to be working through this series in the book of John and addressing that question. What we're doing today, today is just sort of orientation. We're going to look at this prologue that, the, that John wrote and we're going to draw some, some lessons out of here uh, in the, in the, under three categories. Just first, what we're going to learn about John's gospel. Second, things we need to learn about John's purpose in writing. And then a couple of things we need to observe about Jesus' pattern. So about John's gospel, we're going to learn about um, John's purpose. And then a few, uh, just a couple of thoughts about Jesus' pattern as we go through um, this gospel. You're also going to see that there is a, uh, a phone number at the top of the screen. As we go along, if you, if you have questions that come up about something that I've said or about something that's in the passage that uh, hasn't been answered, feel free to text those in. And at the end of the service, I'll, I'll read those questions and then we can gather here at the end of the service and, and I, can, I can answer those. Love getting those questions, love answering them too, so don't be shy, feel free, uh, go ahead. So let's begin and talk about just what is it that we need to know about John's gospel. So I'm going to say a, a bit about the author, first of all. Who are we talking about who wrote this? Uh, his name is John, fascinatingly enough. Um, but he's, he identifies himself in the gospel at least four times as the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one whom Jesus loved. He's right here in the story. He is, it's one of those rare situations where the author of a book of the Bible is right here in the story. He's the same John who wrote the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He also seems to be the same John who wrote the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible, this big vision about Jesus' return. Um, as about John's life, it's, tradition says that he spent a bunch of time in Ephesus actually hanging out with Jesus' mother Mary. And so he wrote this gospel letter to a church community in Ephesus who are trying to figure out how do we, uh, how do, we do this Christian life given the tensions that we, we face. And we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit. Uh, John is the only disciple who lived to an old age and died a natural death. And during that time, he was the mentor of a bunch of early church fathers. And so you read about Clement or, or Irenaeus and just all of these different early church fathers who can trace their discipleship all the way back to the, disciple, to, to the apostle John. Um, one more thing about John that I think is really, uh, is really neat. Like, if you grew up in a Catholic or an Anglican background, you might have seen that um, each of the four gospel writers is represented with an animal. Did you know that? So each has their own animal symbol. Like, there's a bull, one of them is a lion, one of them is an eagle. John is, uh, is an eagle. So all through old, you know, Christian art, the gospel writer John is represented, his gospel is rep represented with an eagle because uh, an eagle apparently is the only animal in the animal kingdom that can look straight into the sun. 
And it's believed that like, that's, that is a good reflection of just who John is. And so John has this special connection to Jesus. If there's something that he wants to say about Jesus, if there's something he wants us to know, it's, we, we really should pay attention. So that's about the author. Let's talk about the date. Just really quick, this is the last of the Gospels to be written towards the end of the first century, like as, as late as 95 AD. So, no, who, who, cares about, who cares about that? See, 95 AD is, like six, is, is more than 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Okay? It's a generation after the other Gospels had been written. And that's important because John isn't writing history. He's writing theology. Like, when you write history, you want to write that as close to the events as possible. And that's how you know it's good and accurate. But with theology, theology is like, um, theology is like fine wine and cheese. It needs to age. And so John's gospel, it's aged 60 years at least. He and his community that formed this letter that, that recorded these ideas, they've had time to really think about the implications of what they're saying. And John has had time to make careful choices about what, should, what to include and what to leave out. And so John's gospel is worth paying attention to because his theology is, seems to be the most refined. It's the gospel where you see uh, a Jesus who is the most emotional and the most human, the most personal, and at the same time he is the most cosmic the most sort of supernatural and spiritual all at the same time. And so, again, this, that makes this a really cool uh, and important gospel for us to read. Now, a word about John's context. In this time, there is an argument and a dis- real dispute raging about who are the true people of God. Who are, like, there's a big division about who are the true Jews. And the division is between two sides. On one hand, you've got a group like the Pharisees, who are very careful and very biblical, and they take God's word really literally and very seriously, and they see it as their goal to preserve the teaching that's been handed down to them over the years. Okay, and the Pharisees, they abstain from all kinds of uh, cultural practices and worldly practices that they would think are, are wrong. We might call them the conservatives. Okay? On the other hand, you've got a group who, of Jews who welcomed Jesus. <clears throat> they, they were really excited when he arrived because they believed he's going to free them from the, the oppression of the Romans and the, the, the rule of, this, of Caesar. And these, this group, they, they cherry-pick parts of Scripture that support their political views and their social views. And we might call them liberals. Okay? They would have a lot in common with, with uh, like Antifa, for example. And these people love Jesus because they think that he, they, he seems to agree with some of their, their political views. And the debate that John is trying to address is like, who is right? Who in this context and in this culture, who are the true Jews? Who's being biblical? And this tension is going to come up a whole bunch of times. We're going to see it again and again as we go through this gospel. And we need to, because this is not totally unlike the moment that we find ourselves in today, isn't it? Because depending on the issue, you might find yourself either conservative or liberal or somewhere in between. We often find ourselves caught in the middle of these two poles, don't we? And so John has a solution right here in the prologue. We're going to talk about his purpose now. So this prologue, it functions the way that most prologues do. Like if you saw, um, if you saw the Lord of the Rings movies, right? So they begin with a prologue. There's this extended sort of um, story of the origins of Middle-earth and where the ring came from. And then you've got another uh, bunch of scenes just showing who hobbits are. And, and that's like 15 or 20 minutes of prologue in the, the Lord of the Rings movies, right? Am I, ta- am I right? And, and it's like, you could skip that if you wanted to and jump into the story, but it is so helpful to know that background. 
And, and, and John's gospel works the same way. Because here in John's prologue, he's going to make some really big claims about who Jesus is, and, and we need to see what those are. So first of all, John wants us to know, John wants to know, he wants us to know that Jesus is God. Okay? Jesus is God. Kids, this is so important that you just see this right explicitly and, and clearly in the passage. Jesus is God. He says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Um, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness didn't overcome it. Now, this passage uses this term, the word, the word, the word. It's used a whole bunch of times. It's a Greek word, it's a Greek term, uh, the logos, which you may have heard of, or or, or maybe not, but... Um, it's, a, it's a term that's hard to translate into English. What, what is this logos? It's the same word we get logic from. It's an idea. It's an expression. It's, this, it's, um, it's a reason, or it's, a, it's the meaning of God. Um, it's, so so this, 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 uh, this word logos, it's the, the idea of God. And in the Old Testament, this concept of logos, or word, it's expressed, or it's, it's summed up in God's word, the Torah. So the Torah is something that if you're a Jewish person, you, you took Torah into you, you thought about it, you loved it, you meditated on it, you t- meditated on Torah, and, and that same idea is, is carried forward and um, represented in the New Testament in this logos, in this, this word. But John is saying, now it's not just words on a page. All right? Now it's not ideas for us to think about and meditate on. Now it's a person. And, and this person was there in the beginning. He was there in the beginning. He was with God and he was God. It's like John is going back and he is rewriting the book of Genesis. And he's making it about Jesus. That's a, that's, a, that's a big deal. Just imagine how that would sound to some of the religious leaders back then. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know who he is. He's the Son of God. He is Jesus. Um, that's why I agree with Don Carson who says this. He says that John intends that the whole of his gospel should be read in light of this verse. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this be not true, the book is blasphemous. The book is blasphemous. Blasphemy is a word that means like it's an offense. It's a claim that's untrue and it, it offends God. So if this isn't true, this book is blasphemous, uh, Don Carson says. I agree. Second thing we should know about, this, about John's purpose in this gospel, he wants us to know that Jesus is like the ultimate rabbi. Jesus is, is the ultimate rabbi. He, he compares Jesus to another famous uh, teacher in those days, a person who had a large following, John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is going around and he's baptizing people and he's making disciples and he's teaching them about this person who would come. And so John, the gospel writer, says that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Uh, he, he, was, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He himself, John the, God, John the Baptist, isn't the light. He is not the one, but he came to testify about the light because the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jump down to verse 15. John the Baptist testified concerning this Jesus and said, this was the one. He is the one. He, this is the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. 
Now, we're going to see John the Baptist a couple of times, a few times as we go through this gospel together, um, because he's important. He's an important witness who has a testimony, letting people know, letting his audience know, guys, it is not about me. You don't need me anymore. Don't listen to me. Go and listen to Jesus. Jesus is better. He ranks above me. So Jesus is the ultimate rabbi, even more, even greater than John the Baptist. John also wants us to know that Jesus gives life. Jesus gives life. There's a promise in here for us, okay? Jesus gives life. He says that uh, he, Jesus, was in the world. The world was created through him, and yet the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who are born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. So this word came. He was made flesh. He came to his own. Just like the Old Testament said that he would. Just like the prophecy said he would come. He came to his own. But when they were face to face, the ones who were waiting for him didn't recognize him. They didn't receive him. They didn't recognize him. They, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't have him. And so Jesus was rejected by, conservatives, by the conservatives and by the liberals. And John wants to know... Though that's true, he wants us to know that for everyone who did receive him, and the same is true today, for everyone who receives him, to all who believe, he gives the right to be children of God. To all who believe in his name, he gives the right to be children of God. Jesus gives life. Jesus is the giver of life. And and then this. John wants us to know that Jesus reveals God. Jesus reveals God. So important. Uh, the, the word became flesh, John says, and dwelt among us. We, John includes himself in this group who has observed him, we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son of the Father, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Indeed, verse 16, indeed we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Comparing Moses and Jesus. Now verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The, on, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. So now God's word has shown up. He has, he has you know, come and, and joined the community. I really love Eugene Peterson's translation of this verse. He says that uh, the word became flesh. He moved into the neighborhood. He moved into the neighborhood. It's this idea of a tabernacle, like in the Old Testament, in Exodus. God has shown up and gone camping with us. He's joined the community. And nobody had ever seen God this way. No one had ever seen God this way, but now we have, John says, Jesus shows us. Jesus has shown us who God is. The Word became flesh and has dwelt among us. This is a totally new thing. And when that happened... I think about, like, what was that like? What, what was that experience like? I think it looks something like this. Now, my family, we, we sponsor a, a, a young girl um, named Charity, a sweet little girl. from She's from Uganda in Africa. We sponsor her through uh, Compassion Canada. Um, we have never met. Uh, our whole relationship is in the form of, of, of letters that we write back and forth to one another. Um, so a few, times, uh, a few times a year, a few times a year, uh, our kids will get a letter or, and, and they'll get one in return from, from us. And so that's the, that's the nature, that's the extent of our relationship. That's how we know one another. And if you were to ask Charity, what is, what's Mike like? Or what are the Molesky's like? 
Uh, she would say they're, 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 he's, he's caring, he's nice, he's involved, he cares about what, what, I, what I'm doing. And she, writes, and she writes to us and she tells us what she's learning in school and what she's up to. And, um, uh, and, and, uh, and so that's the nature of our relationship is mediated through these letters. So she has a knowledge of us. She has an idea of what we're like. Okay? Now, suppose... Suppose I traveled across the world. Suppose I landed in Uganda and I visited Charity because I wanted to get to know her. And I wanted to show her some things. And I wanted to spend time with her and her family. And suppose we learned to love each other. And then eventually I had to go, but I promised her I'd be back someday. That would change our relationship, right? That would, that would change the nature of our relationship. It would change things. Because before, she had an idea of who I am. She had an idea of what I was like because of the letters. But now, I've been revealed as a person. Now, she has known me in, in the flesh. And so, the relationship changes. Now, she's not probably, she's probably not going to throw those letters away. She's not going to do away with those letters. She's going to hold on to them. Now that we've met, those letters probably, I think, they probably mean more. They're probably more important to her. They're not less important. She's going to hold on to them. On the other hand, think about what a tragedy it would be. Think about what a tragedy it would be if I arrived in Uganda to meet Charity and her family, and she was like, uh, you know what? No thanks. Like, I, I have the letters. I don't need you. Thanks. I'm good. Or, or, or imagine if I arrived in Uganda and, 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 and Charity said, um, you know, I, I really thought that I would want to meet you. But now that I have a face to go with the name and to go with the description, now that you're here, I'm just kind of disappointed, so no thanks. And, and that was the end of it. Imagine. Or, or imagine Charity's response to meeting me in, in Uganda. Imagine I arrive and she says, you know, I know these letters backwards and forwards and inside out. I know exactly what, what, uh, what you have said. Or I, I know exactly what, to, what I'm looking for. And there is no way that you're the same person who wrote this stuff. So I pass. I don't want to know you. Would that not be a tragedy? And the gospel writer John, he wants us to know that that is exactly what happened. In his prologue, he wants us to know that's exactly the same thing that happened. The word came to his own. Not only did they not recognize him, not only did they not receive him, they outright rejected him. They killed him. They rejected him and they killed him and they were sure that what they were doing was right and biblical. And so John writes this gospel in order to settle this dispute. Look, the liberals and the, cons the conservatives, they don't have the monopoly on being biblical anymore. Now, uh, like, they don't have the monopoly on being biblical, not if they've rejected the author uh, of Scripture. So the measure now, John wants us to know, of, of whether you're in or out isn't, how do you interpret this book? Like, how do your interpretations line up with, with ours? Do you, do you read this book the same way that I do? Do you have all the same positions in this book uh, and on these issues that, uh, that I do? Do you believe the same things as I do? Do you love and hate the same people that we, that we do on, on our team? Do you take Scripture seriously? Now, John wants us to know, now the question is, what do you do with the Word made flesh? How seriously do you take the Word made flesh? When He arrives, when you come to know Him, what do you do with the person of Jesus, the Son of God? Do you take Him seriously? 
And as we move through John's gospel, there's going to be, uh, there's going to be a couple of important pa- uh, patterns that I want us to pay attention to as I, as I wrap up here. A couple of patterns that I think are, are important for us to observe. One of them is to, has to do with Jesus' enemies. The people who turn out to be Jesus' enemies should be his friends. Do you get that? The people who would turn out in this gospel to be Jesus' enemies should be his friends. They're the ones who, who know their Bibles the best, um, and they're the most antagonistic toward Jesus. Think of that. Like the biblical people in that culture, they can't figure Jesus out. They can't get along with him. And they're constantly challenging Jesus because he seems to disobey the things that they think are the clear meaning of Scripture. And he is constantly correcting them. Because he's like, how could you not see what's been there this whole time? It's really about me. And, and I, think, I think that there's a warning here for us, right? There's a warning here for us. The, the, the biblical team, the biblical team, they're the ones who are going to eventually betray and murder Jesus. And they're going to believe that they're acting according to God's word. So we're going to pay attention as we go to the people who, who uh, appear to be Jesus' enemies. And let's also pay attention to the people who turn out to be Jesus' friends. Because Jesus' friends turn out to be the people who should be his enemies. His enemies turn out to be the ones who should be his friends. His friends, his actual friends, the people he spends time with, are the ones that, in his culture, they were being taught, based on, you know, what they learned in Sunday school, with chapter and verse, that you're not supposed to hang out with these people. Sinners and Gentiles and Samaritans. You're not supposed to hang out with these people. Like, the Bible seems to say so. Not only could they point to scripture to to support these things, there was also just a lot of social pressure. Like, what happens if your parents catch you hanging out with these people? What happens if you're, you know, what happens if you're the people you go to church with or you go to synagogue with? What if they see you hanging out with these people? I can't work. What if, what if somebody sees you liking or or sharing on Facebook the, the posts of these, of these people? You know, the wrong person sees that. You can get in all kinds of trouble. There's all kinds of, you know, this guilt by association thing that, that a lot of us live with. And Jesus wants you to know, like, that, or, like that's just not a thing for Jesus. Guilt by association, it's just not a thing for Jesus. He knows, his, he knows the Bible. He knows the Word better than anybody else. He is the Word incarnate. He's the Word made flesh. And these are the people that were be, you were being taught. Not, you're not allowed to hang out with these people. And Jesus is spending his time with them. At weddings at a well, after one of them is, as one of them is about to be stoned for adultery, Jesus is hanging out with these people. And so, um, I think if you think about this for long, if we think about this for a long time, you might wrestle with, what do we do now with the Bible? Like, now that we have Jesus, if we can know who he is, what is the point of, what, what do we do with the Bible? Maybe if Jesus is a fuller revelation of God, maybe we can sort of, we can afford to diminish the value of scripture in our life. We don't need to pay as much attention to it. And, and there is a tension for us. As we, as we go on through this series, we're going to see that there is a tension between honoring the clear meaning of the text and following the real person of Jesus who is revealed there. And that is not a new thing. That is a, that's a tension that we're going to have to maintain. We're going to come back to that a few times. But, but we do have a few choices, right? We have a few options. Like some people, when they are confronted by this Jesus, uh, it just, something breaks, and they decide that they can't handle Scripture, that Scripture can't be trusted. Um, and, and you might know people who've done that. 
Like if, if interpreting scripture now through the lens of Jesus, if that's because it's going to be complicated, if it's too difficult, if things don't make sense after just a very minimal amount of effort, let's just leave the whole thing behind once and for all. So certainly that's one option. And you might know people who have, who have, have chosen that. And, and, and it's sad. Um, another option is we can avoid everything in the Bible that came before Jesus. Like you can just say, well, that happened before Jesus. We can cut it out. We don't need to pay any, any attention to it. And, and that's certainly not a new idea. That's, that's a, another very old idea. And just so you know, like, I don't know if you realize this or not, nobody in our culture would bat an eye if we were to, to, to decide that um, we don't need to take the Old Testament seriously, for example. Or that we can look at the passages that seem to disagree with Jesus and we can just sort of ignore those. Nobody would pay attention to that if we just said, we're going to be the red letter people. Nobody would, nobody would bat an eye at that. But, but there is another choice. Because in John's Gospel, we're going to see that everything changed when Jesus shows up. And some of the things that we believed about God turned out to be untrue. It turns out that we misunderstood some of those things. And some of those things that, are, that turns out are so good, we couldn't imagine them being true. It turns out that they are true. So Jesus doesn't make the Bible obsolete. He doesn't make the Bible obsolete. The, the Bible was never wrong. What, what we have, though, is now we have the key to understanding what it, what it meant all along. All right? Jesus is the key to unlocking what the, what the Bible means for us. Okay, the whole Bible. The whole Bible is helpful. It's useful for building us up and preparing us for the faith and for living in this world that God, God has given if we understand it rightly through the lens of Jesus. So we understand the scriptures through the lens of Jesus. He is the one who makes sense of the Bible for us. So as we move through this study of John, as we're going to over the next several weeks, I'm just, my, my prayer, my dream for us is that um, we're going to know beyond the shadow of a doubt through this book that we are, that we are loved and, and just how good the good news of Jesus is. And we're going to see that as, as we go through this book. I pray that we're going to see that stuff, that we're going to see that God has spoken to us and he has spoken through a person and we can know exactly what he wants to say. Like there needs to be no more mystery about who God is and what he wants to say to us. We can know exactly what God wants to say if we read his word through the lens of the person and work of Jesus. That's why I'm going to close with this quote from a, a contemporary theologian. His name is Brian Zond. He says this, he says, uh, if you want a violent retributive God, the Bible will give that to you. If you, want a, if you want capital punishment, the Bible will give that to you. If you want to hate your enemies, the Bible will give that to you. If you want divine warrant for your every opinion, the Bible will give that to you. If you want to be a smug, self-righteous know-it-all, the Bible will give that to you. If you want assurance that only people like you are going to heaven, the Bible will give that to you. But if you want peace, nonviolence, mercy, forgiveness, reconciliation, humility, advocacy, and love, the Bible will also give that to you. But it will do so, hear this, but it will do so by faithfully pointing you to Jesus. When we look to the Bible without self-interested agenda, the Bible says to us, now look to Jesus, for he is the true word of God. The supreme value of the treasure that is Holy Scripture is that it is the divine witness to the Word of God who is Christ. Let me say that again. The supreme value of the treasure that is Holy Scripture is that it is the divine witness to the Word of God who is Christ. 
See, John's gospel is written to persuade us that Jesus is God's perfect, authoritative, inerrant, infallible, holy word. Jesus is the lens through which we interpret all of scripture. And, and he's God. He's the ultimate rabbi. He's the giver of life. He reveals God. In other words, Jesus is what God wants to say. So as we go through, we're going to see what does God want to say to religious leaders? What does God want to say to hypocrites? What does God want to say to abused women? What does God want to say to, uh, to, uh, to Gentiles, to those who grieve, to people who are sick and to suffering? We're going to see what God wants to say about power and about money and about faith because Jesus is what God wants to say. So I hope you'll join us for that. I'll just invite you to just close, us, close our time now in prayer. Jesus, I- thank you for listening.